I would truly love someday to be part of a heavenly choir that sang Hosanna, Hallelujah, and Praise to God. I was one of those barely hangers honors in the ambassador crowd for a few years because they needed more bodies. Uh, and I admired those who truly had singing talent and ability. And the sung word is certainly more inspiring and powerful than the spoken word. But for the rest of the day, <clears throat> you're stuck with the spoken word. So let's proceed. In a recent study, which I presented to you on the Bible study of the first day of the first month, we discussed the examination period that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 11, that we should examine ourselves and then come and keep the Passover. And I think that in that study we saw in the scriptures on the first day of the first month and other scriptures about the first month itself, that indeed there is a period of time that God designates that is supposed to be the examination period. And it's 13 days, first day through the 13th, up until the 14th day, in which we examine ourselves in a formal way, not just haphazardly whenever it strikes the mood before Passover, be it a long time before or just before, but that the Bible itself seems to lay out a specific examination period. And even during that period of time, on the 10th day of the first month, they were to examine a kid of the goats or the lambs to be sure that it was perfect, that it had no problems, no diseases, no malformations or anything wrong with it, but that it was a perfect specimen of the goat or the lamb species. And they picked that one out to represent the Passover lamb, of course, ultimately uh, as a type, of Christ himself, who would become the Lamb of God. So, it is a period of time that we examine ourselves, and a time when we examine Christ himself, and see the difference, that we fall very short, but that he is perfect and mature, and that he is qualified to be the Savior of us all. So then we have the Passover, which we had last evening, <clears throat> and I find it to be a very emotional and very inspiring time because if we have examined ourselves, we have found ourselves lacking in probably many, many ways. But in that evening, we look at his example, the things he did, the way he lived, the perfection that he had, and then what he went through for us, willing to suffer and to die, that our lacks, our wants, our needs, our deficiencies can be covered over in his blood, and that we can be saved from our sins, because the penalty of sin is death. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, we need 
a Savior. We need one who has not sinned, who did not need to die for his own sins, but was willing to die for our sins. And we rehearsed last night that for a good man, a few might be willing to die. There are a few examples here and there through history where someone was willing to give up their life for the sake of someone else. But it's rare because we love life and we want to live. But he who had everything had been with his father from before the foundations of the earth and had everything good, nothing wrong in his life. Life was wonderful. It was perfect. And it was so good that they said, let's share it. This is so good, we need to let others in on it. So they made man in the image of God. And they purposed to let us in on it. Meanwhile, one began to be proud and vain and think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And he was an angel of God. And pride and vanity and selfishness Self-centeredness began to enter the universe. And he had his effect upon Adam and Eve, the first two human beings that God placed on the earth, and led them into sin, which was fairly easy to do. And God knew before the foundation of the earth that this would occur. And they designated Christ as the lamb that would be slain for the sins of us all, and that we all might be made perfect and be able to share the beauty, the honor, the glory of becoming God someday and sharing their life with them. What an incredible story that is, that God himself would give up life for you, for me. We aren't much, are we? Just piles of clay, dirt, that will go back to dirt. But then the resurrection. Because God has a big mind. He has a merciful mind. He has a purposeful mind. He does not look at all the small detail, but can see a bigger picture at all times than do we. He can see the answer to all the problems. We read of horrible things in the Bible that are going to occur here in the end time. And to us, it could be very discouraging and disheartening and frustrating to realize that most people on earth are going to have to die horrible, sickening deaths with suffering. Starvation, famine, pestilence, injury unto death. From the sword of war. And to a small mind, that might seem incomprehensible. But to God, He sees a plan and a purpose, a humbling that is necessary to bring people to the point of obedience when He brings them up later. And it's hard for us to understand resurrection, is it not? 
It's hard to us, for us to understand when our loved ones die that they're going to live again. They're going to walk the earth. And that historical figures of the past that we have great respect and honor to, mentioned in Hebrews 11 and other places in the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, will rise from their graves. Graves that are thousands of years old. Literally, get up out of those graves when they are opened and live again. Gloriously, with the King all glorious. God sees a huge picture that is hard for us to grasp. <clears throat> now we are called out ones who have been called out of this world, not because we were mighty and noble, but in particular because we are weak and base. Now that's hard to understand too, isn't it? If God were going to be creating a world tomorrow of beauty and abundance and peace, from a human standpoint, wouldn't you think that he would choose the brightest, the smartest, those with the most character, the most, those with the most self-control, those who were mighty because they did have intellect and control of themselves, those who were successful on this earth, wouldn't he choose those? Now, if human beings were to set up a kingdom on this earth, Let's say a new world order, one that was supposed to be better than that which had come before. Do you think that they would pick out the weakest, basest peons and peasants they could find and establish their new world with that? Or, conversely, would they, as Hitler, find themselves a master race of better people with better breeding? with long bloodlines of royalty, the illumined ones, the intellectual, the smart ones, the capable ones, the ones who could manage huge corporations. I started to say I'd manage them well, but based on the way things are going right now, maybe that's not so true either. But truly competent, capable people. That's what they are doing. Now, God is taking a totally different approach. He has looked down on this earth and said, I will find the weakest and basest people that are there, and I will set them aside and sanctify them that they might bring glory to my name. Because he believes... Do you believe as God believes? He believes with all his heart that he can take the weakest and basest, very few of the mighty, noble, the wise, he can take the weakest, the basest people on the face of the earth and transform them 
into God. With all ability, strength, and power, and character, and intellect. He can take the bottom of the barrel, turn the barrel over and take what's under it, and turn them into God. Now that is a fairly ambitious plan, is it not? I submit to you that we here are essentially the weak and the base of the world. And he told us to examine ourselves and find out what our errors, our faults, our sins, our deficiencies are. And then to come to the Passover and to take it in all seriousness and understand that as woeful as we might be, He loves us. He cares for us. He gave His life for us. Now, He didn't only give it for you and me, did He? It says, God so loved the world, all the people of the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that those who believe in Him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, ultimately, then, salvation is going to be open to all people. Everyone is going to have a chance. All Israel shall be saved, it says in Romans 11. But, he called out a few in what he calls a day of salvation to be the firstborn of many brethren. The first of the first fruits was Christ Himself. But the rest of the first fruits are those in the first resurrection, a better resurrection. He is called out for His purposes to use them as a bride for His Son. 144,000 of them. He has an exact number. We're all here trying to qualify to be wives and mothers, keepers at home. Shouldn't it become apparent to us, even you men here, are here for the purpose of learning to be a good woman as a bride of Emmanuel. Being a mother is the most important and high calling there is on this earth. We have a society that's upside down and they think that being a woman in a business suit or whatever is a higher calling than raising kids for God. But it's not. Abraham was a type of our Father in Heaven. Isaac, his son, was a type of Christ. Abraham was asked to sacrifice Isaac to show that type. And both were willing. Jacob then named Israel, the son of Isaac, became a type of Israel who was to become the bride of Christ. He married Israel, but she wasn't a good woman. She didn't stay at home and take care of the kids like she had been commissioned to do. She had to go out in the big, bad economic and business world and make a place for herself there. And God then called her a great whore. 
because she left the confines of the home and went out to work in this world. She did not grasp and understand that she needed the tools of motherhood and that her children needed her. Indeed, God has cast the church, Jerusalem, as the mother of us all. The ministry is here to be a mother, not a father. Our father is in heaven. The mother is there to point the children to the father. She has a very important job. Motherhood. When we are in the kingdom of God, as the bride of Christ. He will be our husband, and we will be his helpmeet to govern, to teach, to bring up to spiritual perfection his children. What an awesome calling we have to be the mother of Christ's children. And now in type, at least in part, trying as a ministry to help you respond to your father in the right ways. And you ladies here have a high calling of God because all your children are the children of God. And your most important job on this earth is to rear those children according to the precepts of God Almighty. So we're all here to be mothers, aren't we? Now, we have an examination period, then we have the Passover, where we look to our husband-to-be, our husband-to-come, and we look up to him and respect and appreciate him for what he did and how he's leading the family. We are the family of God here. So then after the Passover, having examined ourselves and found ourselves lacking, then being inspired by his example and purpose and what he has done for us in dying for our sins so that we might stand clean and pure and white before him. And that is the mode in which we walked out of here last night, having been cleansed of our sins. Standing clean and white. He said, you are all clean, but not all, speaking of Judas. But they had all been cleansed by him. And humbled by him washing their feet. But within the seven days of unleavened bread, it's, it's kind of a strange dichotomy in a way. We then have seven days of putting sin out of our lives. 1 Corinthians 5 nails that for us. It does say to keep seven days of unleavened bread there in Leviticus 23. But here he talks about a sinner in the congregation in 1 Corinthians 5. And he says in verse 5, to deliver such and one unto... I said chapter 5, verse 5. To deliver such and one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Emmanuel. Your glorying is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. 
Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, showing that leaven represents sin during these days, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, that which is not puffed up, proud, and vain, but that which is humble and meek and lowly. To recognize the difference between our Savior and us. And the difference between the husband and the bride-to-be and how we have to be raised up to the level of Christ. Kind begets kind. Married begets married of the same kind. Generally, in mankind's experience, fours marry fours and sixes marry sixes, and if they're tens, tens marry tens. We find people who are on perhaps the same mental levels, somewhat the same type of looks, or whatever, we find someone that we can equate to, usually not too high or too low from where we might apprise ourselves being. And so it is true that Christ is looking for a bride of commensurate stature as himself. And he has chosen a very difficult and rocky road for himself in that he said, I'm going to take the weakest and the basest and I'm going to transform them from ones to tens, if you will. Well, I don't mean to step on your toes too much. Maybe twos to tens then, okay? Whatever. Weak in base, nonetheless. So he's taken on a pretty good project here. So first we examine, and then we spend an evening talking of perfection. And then we walk out, inspired by the perfection we see in him, and we continue then for seven days formally putting sin out of our lives so that we might become more like he is. I'm going to get to probably a series of sermons here, Bible studies, but I'm laying some groundwork for it. And I want to add another point here, and that is that in journalism classes that I took in high school and in college and in editing high school and college newspapers, that as a reporter, one of the main things they taught us if we're going to write an article, is we had to answer certain questions. There were six of them. And if you were learning journalism in any form, in classes in this world, in its colleges, or an ambassador, or wherever, those six questions you were taught to ask, and be sure you answered, because you hadn't covered the subject until you answered all six of those questions. Those questions were who, what, why, where, when, and how. And when you wrote an article, you were supposed to examine it. 
and see if you had answered all six of those. If you had, you probably had a pretty decent article. Because if you answered those six, that pretty well covered all the questions that people would have. And I want to apply that to us here. Who are we? No, I don't mean who are we necessarily just as a part of the church of God, although that is part of the bigger picture. But if we are to examine ourselves and be specific and purposeful in this, and to put sin out of our lives, because certainly we cannot put it out of others' lives, can we? I could stand here for hours and preach myself blue in the face and never overcome your sins. Nor mine either, for that matter, just by talking. So we need to be specific, don't we? Don't we need to know who we are? If you know who you are, that gives you an insight into what maybe you need to be doing. It's always important to know who we are. We had a whole generation of kids back in the 60s looking for themselves, trying to find themselves. And they went through LSD and all kinds of drugs to try to find themselves, to know who they were. They were, in a way, kind of a lost generation. They weren't of the war generation. They weren't of those who built this nation. They were the progeny. And they didn't know what their purpose in life was. So they went through, who am I? And then we need to know what we are. What are we? Isn't it important to know? Now, I have some dogs, a couple of Pyrenees, and they need to know what they are. They're not retrievers. If I take them out to the lake with a shotgun, hunting ducks, and let's say I shoot a duck and it falls in the water, my Pyrenees are not going to swim out and get that duck. They don't think they're golden retrievers. And they're right. Now, what they are as a breed is guard dogs for sheep or goats, small animals. Now, if they don't know what they are and they decide that they're a, what, poodle? They won't be very good guard dogs. So, they need to know what they are. We're here to guard the animals then they may have a pretty good chance of doing what their purpose is. We need to know what we are, what our purpose is. The next question is why? Why are we here? Why are we right here? How did we get here? Now, I'm not speaking for the rest of the church because I can't answer that for them. Why are they where they are? Why are they in Dallas or Cincinnati or Charlotte or Seattle or somewhere else? Thailand? 
There are parts of the church scattered all over the earth. They must answer why they are where they are. We need to be able to answer why we are where we are. Very famous place, Cane Beds, Arizona. Yeah, right. Why on earth would you be there? People would ask. Do we have a good reason? Do we know why we are here? When? When did this happen? When is a matter of timing? When something did occur or will occur? When? If you study history, you want to know when something happened 2,000 years ago or when it will happen. A year from now, six years, ten years, twenty years from now, when will it be? So when is a critical issue. Why are we here now? Now is part of when. How? How did it come about? You see, we need to answer all six of these in order to more intellectu- or more intelligently, I should say, examine ourselves, find out what could possibly be wrong with us, what lacks we might have before God in order that we might fulfill His purposes that He has for us individually. Now, each person who has been called, set aside, sanctified of God, as potential candidates for the Bride of Christ, needs to answer all six of those questions. And the more intelligently they can do it, the more opportunity they will have of being successful in the calling that God has given them. So we need to know these things. I want you to be armed with every possible tool to accomplish the purpose for which God called you. Now do not consider for a moment that He did not call you, whatever your name is there. Because no man can come to the Father or the, to Christ except the Spirit of the Father draw him, John six forty four. And we read it in John, last night, 15 or 16, somewhere along there, 14 maybe, where he said, we're only here because of the Father and Him. I'll not turn back there, but you probably remember us reading it. So we need to answer some questions about ourselves. And I think if we do this, we'll be much better prepared. We'll have more answers for the hope that lies within us. And if you know what you're, where you're going, what you're doing, why you're there, then maybe you can better fulfill your purpose. Now, I'm going to begin somewhat basic with this. And that is, speaking of this group, whether we're here physically today or whether we might be on a telephone line or wherever, you have some interest in what is going on here. 
or you wouldn't be here or out there listening on the telephone. Now, there have been times when we had people on our telephone line who were there only to mock us, to ridicule us, to learn what we believe in order that they might laugh and throw stones. We have had that in our past. But for the most part, we're small enough and unimportant enough to the rest of the church in the world that they pay us no mind. You know, we, we could be prideful in that we think we're something, but for the most of the rest of the world and the church, we're not big enough or important enough to even be considered. And if we're considered at all, it's those kooks out there in the desert. That is their view of us. Now, as one kooky to another, which cutter did we come from? Why are we here? How did we get here? Why is it important that we be here? Why aren't we somewhere else? Let's go, first of all, to Revelation 1. Notice I said revelation, not revelations. There was only one revelation given to John. And it wasn't the revelation of St. John the Divine, as my Bible has a heading. It says that it was the revelation of Christ Emmanuel, which God gave to him, to show to his servants things which must shortly come to pass. So this was a revelation of Christ to John, which he was to write down for certain ones that are designated here, as we shall see. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore record of three things here, the Word of God, all those things which had been written previously, John took into account, because what he was about to write here had to fit the rest of the Bible. And indeed, there are parallel scriptures in Matthew 24 and in Daniel and other places which tie in very closely with what John writes here. So he bore record of the Word of God and of the testimony of Christ himself. John had spent time with him, and then he got this vision from Christ that came from the Father, and of all things that he saw. So the Word of God that was written, the testimony of Christ which he heard with his own ears, and the things he saw with his own eyes, and of all the things that he saw in this vision. Those three things are all brought together here in this last book of the Bible. Now, blessed is he that reads, and they that hear the words of this prophecy. If you consider, hear and read the words that are written here today, you are blessed of God. And keep those things which were written therein, for the time is at hand. So to hear it is one thing, but to be a doer of it, a keeper of it, is something else. And those who hear it and do it are blessed of God. Now, these words have never been more truly spoken in saying the time is at hand than they are this very day. Than they are this very moment. 
than they are this very moment. See, the moment keeps moving on, doesn't it? doesn't stop. So I could keep saying it is truer now than it was ten seconds ago. Sounds goofy and corny, but God's plan moves forward. There's no going back. And we're getting closer and closer, moment by moment here, to all these things happening. Sometimes you want to say, stop the world. I need time to think. I need time to prepare. I need to get ready. But it can't stop. Time marches on inexorably. We're caught in it. We can't get out of it. I got a birthday coming up. Oh no, here it comes. This month, the end of the month. Can't get out of it. Well, I could. But I don't want to go that way either. So it's inevitable. Time marches on. So this that is written here is important because the time is at hand and it's drawing closer second by second. Says John to the seven churches which are in Asia, Grace be to you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. The Alpha and the Omega. The one that's always been and always will be. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. So this is to be written to certain people from God and concerning he or the seven spirits which are before his throne. Those become very important. And from Christ, Emmanuel, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So he brings in Christ's sacrifice right here in Revelation 1. And the importance of that. Because to those who hear this and follow it, that blood becomes very important. And has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. Now he speaks of those things that are not as if they already are. So he speaks of us as kings and priests if we come under the blood of Christ. And the only way you're not going to become a king and a priest is if you somehow get taken off and out of the book of life. Because God tentatively penciled you in when you were baptized. He made you a part. He set you aside for that purpose. Made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now he says, Behold, He comes with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Now when you understand the order of resurrections, you understand that those who pierced Him, literally pierced Him, will not be up until the second resurrection, but they will. Now we who have also pierced him, figuratively and metaphorically, by our sins, will see him when he comes. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. It's not going to be a pretty return. 
Now we understand there are two returns now, do we not? He comes and takes his saints, and they rise to meet him in the air in a cloud. Remember what he told Peter when he read last night? Or, or was it John? Whoever he was talking to anyway. He said, you can't come with me now, but you will later on. We will rise to meet him in the air. It's not that every eye will see him at that time. In one way, it is a secret rapture, a doctrine we have poo-pooed, and in the Protestant sense, it is a false doctrine. But he is going to come for his saints, and we will rise, and we will go with him then to be at his Father's throne on the sea of glass, and we will marry Christ. And after a year's honeymoon, while the seven last plagues are happening on this earth, we will return with him, and every eye shall see him, and in righteousness he will make war. Riding on a white horse, his vesture dipped in blood, it is very clear. And he will return with his saints, and every eye will see him. Those are word for word what he has to say. He says he's Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. John goes down in verse 10 says, I was in the Spirit on the day of the Lord. Should be, not the Lord's day, not the weekly Sabbath or Sunday as the Protestants would have you say, but in the day of the Lord, when he begins to take a hand in things. And heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And he names the seven. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. So in the beginning of this vision, he sees Christ, and he sees seven golden candlesticks. And in the middle of the seven candlesticks, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. So he was in the form of a man, like the Son of Man. His head and his hair were white like wool, and as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as a sound of many waters. If you've been to some huge waterfalls, different places of the earth, the roar of the cascading waters coming over the falls of many waters running is what his voice is like. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shines in his strength. To look upon him is like glancing up at the sun, burns your eyes, blind you if you kept looking. King, all glorious. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, scared him. Now, he knew Christ. He'd spent years with him. But when he saw Christ in the glorified state, he fell at his feet as dead in this vision. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying to me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. John knew those words, knew that he had been told that. I am he that lives and was dead. Don't let anybody tell you he faked his death and lived on. 
And behold, I am alive forevermore. There is where our hope lies, in that He truly is alive forevermore. Amen, or so be it. And He says, I have the keys of hell and death. So life and death are in His hand. This is pretty important. You want to live, I want to live. And this great being holds the keys of life and death. Write the things which you've seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. And he explains, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. He explains, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches. So he explains the symbolism of what John was seeing. Now John was what? He was an apostle, one of the original in the church of God. One that Christ himself had appointed to be a leader of the church in that day. And one to whom he had chosen to give this vision to impart knowledge to the churches. Now he used seven churches in Asia probably around the Mediterranean, because Paul did go there, even though I think he was headquartered at this Jerusalem over here. But he also visited that Jerusalem over there, and he did proselyte among the Gentiles and the Asians who were there. So there's no contradiction between what we're beginning to see and what is recorded here. But he was an apostle to, Paul was, to the Gentiles, and he said to Israel as well. So, those seven churches that Paul went to formed a mail route, which we're familiar with, but I told you I'm getting basic here for a reason. They formed a mail route. You had the first one, Ephesus. Then you got on your horse and went on to Smyrna then to Pergamos, then to Thyatira, on around you had made the whole route. I heard the school bus this morning honking as it went through its route. And there were some kids that didn't get on the bus, so he honked and honked and finally went on. Well, he has a route that he runs, same one, all the time to pick up children. He knows where they all are, and he drops them off in like manner as he comes back on his route, like a mail run. So those seven churches were used as a type. So the seven did exist there in Asia, and there was a purpose in singling them out, because I think we understand, without going into a great deal of detail here, that Herbert Armstrong preached, and we believe, and I still do believe, that those seven churches would also be historically spread out nose to tail from the time of the beginning of the church in Acts 2 until today. And that we have seen and can go back through history and see those that were the Ephesian church. Very easy to see it. It was the first one on the route, and it was what was raised up there in Acts 2 as the Ephesian era of the church. It was raised in about 30 A.D., and 
continued until about 100 A.D. for a period of about 70 years. And then it basically disappeared. And a church reappeared, a Catholic universal church, claiming to have its roots in that which Christ established, but that was a lie. And then we have been able to trace through the last 2,000 years bits and pieces of people who were keeping God's Sabbath and God's holy days. And you've heard sermons on that probably and read things on it that the church has put out over the years to show that there was a continuation, that the church that Christ began would not die out, the great gates of the grave would not prevail against it, that it would prevail until the end time. And then we saw, after a smattering of information through the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, of here and there people who were obeying God, we saw people come from England and Europe who were keeping the Sabbath, who were keeping God's holy days. There were enclaves of them in, in Rhode Island and here and there in the colonies. It was illegal to keep Christmas in the colonies for a while, some of them at least. And they had a, a, quite a bit of the truth of God when they arrived here. They were soon shouted down, however, and they did not prevail, but this nation went into Babylonian government and pagan ways. But a few survived. And then Herbert Armstrong picked the story up and said that the Church of God Seventh Day, through Ellen G. White and others, was the Sardis era of the church. Ellen G. White broke off, became a preacher, which the Bible condemns, and she and another began the Seventh-day Adventist church, which is an offshoot of God's true church. We are not an offshoot of them, they are of us. But anyway, Mr. Armstrong said the Church of God Seventh-day was the Sardis church, which this book here in chapter 3 says had a name, but it was dead. A name that it was living, but it was dead. That he then, who was converted and brought into the Seventh-day Church of God through Duggar and Dodd and others, broke off from them and began what he termed the Philadelphia era of the church. And we became quite proud that we were of Philadelphia because Revelation 2 and 3 does not say anything negative about that particular era, the sixth era. It does have something negative to say about all the others, but nothing there. However, it does say that they need to overcome. I don't know why it would say you overcome if there's nothing wrong with you. So there must have been things wrong with us, shouldn't there? Surely, as the Philadelphia era of the Church of God knows the tale through history. And then... That which had been, in our view, almost perfect, began to be lackadaisical and half-hearted, take it for granted, we'll get our phone call, go to a place, say to be in the kingdom of God, done deal. We became quite spiritually proud, thinking we had everything, and then we morphed into, I believe, the Laodicean era, 
And that is the era that is most prominent throughout the church of God today. It is the attitude that prevails and permeates the whole church of God, including you and me. It is the prevailing attitude. We set ourselves up for it, brethren, when we were in Worldwide Church of God. By saying, God doesn't say anything bad about us. We must be okay. Everybody wants to be a Philadelphia because they're okay. In other words, we're rich and increased with goods. We have need of nothing. We have it made. And then, at that critical moment, when that attitude became apparent and took hold in us, we morphed into Laodiceanism. We were taking it for granted, and we had a higher opinion of ourselves than we ought to have had. And he spewed us out of his mouth, including you and me. He scattered the church. And it was a great confusion and frustration. Now, I know I'm going way around Jones's barn here to get to who, what, why, where, when, and how. But that's okay. Hang with me. We'll get there. We need the background to understand so that we can answer some questions about ourselves. And perhaps it will help us put sin out of our lives during these days. Help us understand and know ourselves better so that we can be more efficient and more effective in becoming what we need to become. So, nose to tail through history, from the Ephesian era begun on Acts 2, when God gave His Spirit to the church, until today, in the present, we have gone through seven eras of the church, and now we are in the midst of Laodicea. There was a great deal of confusion, frustration. Why would God allow this to happen to the church? We didn't see it coming. How could it have happened? And that was a question that was on the minds of, I'd say, virtually all of us in the church. How could this have happened? We thought Herbert Armstrong was going to live on through. We thought he and his son were probably Zerubbabel and Joshua of Zechariah 3 and 4. And in fact, Herbert Armstrong told me in a personal meeting with him I had in 1981 that he was Zerubbabel. So I went home and studied Haggai and Zechariah because that was a revelation to me. I think it turned out he and his son may have been minor types, but they were not the final fulfillment by any means. They were an end-time church, and they did have a certain commission to do, and I think the two of them had very similar characteristics to Zerubbabel and Joshua of the Scriptures. Herbert Armstrong did found a temple of God, a church of God. And he did see to it that the job was finished before he died. It was built, but what happened to it was beyond his control. And he even said in the later years of his life, 
I've built the church, but it's going off the track. It's headed the wrong direction. And I'm too weak, too feeble, too small, too old to fix it. He could see it happening before his very eyes. And his son was really headed down the wrong channel. Really and truly. But he was a voice of that church. But that was the former temple. The latter temple is yet ahead. Another temple has to be built. We have to have two who come in the spirit of Joshua and Zerubbabel to put them together. Now let's understand what has to happen. Now virtually all of you who are here today or who are listening came to be where you are primarily because of one series of sermons, that is, the Minor Prophets. Because the church had always looked upon the prophecies, all those Minor Prophets, all twelve of them, as well as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, we always thought that they had really only to do with physical Israel. And we could understand that Israel was going to go into captivity, that there would be a physical captivity and so on. And we looked ahead to that. I won't say looked forward because it's a very grim reality that is about to come upon us today. But we looked ahead to that knowing that it had to occur. And we knew that physical Israel would be put to the famine, the pestilence, and the sword. And 90% destroyed. And only a 10% remnant remained to go into the millennium. So that was our worldview of prophecy. So it hit us so hard when the church itself came apart. And we saw people spiritually being put to the sword, famine and pestilence. We didn't expect that. We didn't know how to handle it. I submit to you that most of the church still doesn't even begin to grasp and understand why it happened. But you began to hear a different message when you started hearing the Minor Prophet series. You began to grasp and comprehend, and it probably hit you pretty hard, that there is a dual message there. There is a message, yes, about physical Israel. But there is a message, first of all, to the church. And that all those things written in all those prophecies had not to do first with physical Israel, but first with the church. And then as a second fulfillment, it would have to do with physical Israel. Then it began to fall in place as to why these things happened. The light came on for you. Now there are some who heard those and the light didn't come on. They didn't grasp and understand. But in that series of books written like chapters in a book, 
God gives the whole story of how the church would begin and how it would end. What would happen? He gave the problems. He gave the punishments. And then in Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, He gave the answers as to what would happen next. Where it would go. What He would do. And it caught your attention and mine. Mine to the point that I gave a series of sermons on it. To expand upon and to explain how that story fit the church. And secondarily, how it would fit physical Israel. So the story has gone forward to the point of Habakkuk and Zephaniah at this moment. In terms of the church and now of the nation. Habakkuk complained to God that the promises God had made didn't seem to be coming to pass. And why did the wicked seem to prosper? Even as David mulled those questions in the Psalms. And he even took God to task about it a little bit in Habakkuk. And then he kind of drew back and said, Ooh, wait a minute. I think I had better patiently sit on my watch and see what God does. So he, in patience, waited. Keep that in mind. We'll come back to it at some point. And he said, I'll sit on my watch and wait and see. And I know that if I do what I should, God will bless me. In the last verse he said that. And I'll have hind's legs and everything will be okay. Now that was not a personal prophecy as it turned out about him, but it was a prophecy about the church at the end time and of Israel at the end time. Then we come to the book of Zephaniah where he talks about a great financial crash resounding from the hills and in Maktesh, a an economic center of Jerusalem at the time, much as Wall Street or London, the city of London, are the financial centers of our peoples today. So, Maktesh there in Zephaniah 1 is equivalent to London and New York. And so there'll be a great crashing of finances. And people who had built homes would be put out of them. Now, in terms of the church... We thought we were rich and increased with goods. And we were living in fine spiritual church houses that God had created across the land and around the world. We saw those taken out from under us. We saw a spiritual famine begin to occur. And now today, you have to look hard to find the vestiges of worldwide and even of her daughters who broke off from her, who have tried to maintain the Herbert Armstrong syndrome. And they don't even understand, don't begin to understand Zephaniah, Haggai, and Zechariah, and Malachi. They're just trying to rebuild worldwide, which was flawed in attitude and approach at its end. That which had become had been Philadelphia, had morphed into Laodiceanism. So they're trying to rebuild that which God tore apart. So it shows they have no understanding of where we are or what's going on 
incredible as that may sound. All those churches who are trying to rebuild worldwide are utterly clueless as to what is really going on. They do not understand who, what, why, where, when, or how. They still think they're going to get a call and go to Petra someday, spend three and a half years there and rise to meet Christ in the clouds and come down with Him at that time to set up the millennium. They simply do not understand the fullness of the plan of God. I think you here have a better understanding than 99.9% of the rest of the church as to who, what, why, where, when, and how. Not because we're great, not because we're smart, not because we're spiritual, but simply because we looked at the Scriptures and believed what they said. Now let's go back to Revelation here for a moment. He saw these seven stars. He saw these golden candlesticks. He said in verse 20 of chapter 1, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So God has an angel assigned to each one of the seven churches. Notes the tale through history, and I think we shall see here at the end as well that there are at least three fulfillments of Revelation 2 and 3, or 1, 2, and 3. That there was that original male route, which was used as a symbol of churches that would exist through history, marching one against the other end to end. And a final or third fulfillment would come in the end time, when all seven would exist at the same time. So it's not that the nose-to-tail theory is wrong or that the end time all seven existing together is wrong. They are both correct. It is the last one that people have difficulty seeing. But isn't the book of Revelation written to the end time church? Why mention the first five churches if the end time only has to do with the sixth and the seventh? Let's go over to Revelation 5. And here in verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, that would be Christ, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So we had the seven stars, which represents the angels of the churches, and the candlesticks, which represent the churches. And then over here we have Christ representing seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So the seven spirits here, it appears, equate to the seven stars of chapter 1. Seven angels, seven spirits, and seven eyes. Now the angels that he sent have eyes. They have horns, 
They have power. Horn represents power, dominion, government. So they have rule over these seven spirits, a governing position, in other words, the horns of the seven churches, and they are also responsible for overseeing through the eye the merits and demerits, the activities of the seven churches. So we have here the Bible explaining its own symbolism. So when you get to chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, there is a section here devoted to each of those seven churches. Now before we address that, I want to go back to Zechariah, which I mentioned earlier. And let's begin to understand a little bit about who, what, why, where, when, and how. We know in the book of Haggai, which follows Zephaniah, and Zephaniah you have the financial crash, and it tells God's people to gather themselves before that decree of financial destruction occurs. Now that is one of the scriptures you responded to and took personal. We realized things were getting worse in this country, but when this knowledge first came out, and I began that series of sermons on the minor prophets. That was in 1996, maybe 97, when I actually started the series. It's been quite a while back. And this nation was not in the condition it's in now at that time. We could see trouble coming, but now we see it in spades, do we not? We see the total collapse of the finances of this country right before our very eyes. Collapsing as we stand here. People being taken out of the homes they've built. <coughs> as Zephaniah says, they'll build homes and not live in them. As Isaiah 5 says, they'll build all these homes, the winter home and the summer home, two homes in many cases, and they'll be taken away, destroyed. There's several chapters that talk about us being kicked out of our homes. We apply it spiritually to the church and our church homes and congregations that are gone now. And now we see it happening physically to our very nation where tent cities and the homeless are beginning to grow more and more. So what we saw in the Minor Prophet series is coming to pass before our very eyes. Both fulfillments of it as we come a little further down the pike. The church houses are virtually gone, and now the physical houses are being taken away. And that is something that is going to continue. It is not going to get better in spite of the fact that right now, the last month when the stock market has taken a dead cat bounce, that they're beginning to say it's all over. That is, the bear market is over, and the bulls will take over. It's all over, all right, but they don't understand. It's all over. Finished. Done going to continue to get worse. But God did tell His people, we read it in Zephaniah, before this crash comes, you get out of those cities. Micah 4 says, go dwell in the field, the wilderness, and there you will be delivered. So we responded to those scriptures, among others. 
If you read in Jeremiah 50, 51, Isaiah 48, uh, Zephaniah 1, uh, several others, it tells you that just before Babylon falls, to get out of Babylon, to flee from her, to go to Zion, it says in Revelation 17, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partaker of her sins and her plagues. So every time we find Babylon being mentioned in its fall, it tells us to get out before it happens. Now, was he referring to a small group like us who heeded some of those warnings and came out? Is there a larger movement that he intends to happen, that his whole remnant gathers before that? I don't know that I have the answer to that question at this point. But the warning is certainly there. And some of us did. Let's go to Mark. Keep your finger here. Let's go to Mark before we get into this. Chapter 10. Down about verse 29, I think. And Emmanuel answered and said, Truly I say to you, there is no man that has left house, his home, You did that. I did that. I realized there was a job that had to be done. I was living in Alaska at the time. I loved it there. Marla did too. We had a wonderful home we had built on a lake. We had moose in the yard and we could hear the loons over the lake at night. We absolutely loved it there. And when we had to leave that home in that beautiful place, we cried on the way out. She said, she was driving a different vehicle than I was. She said, I cried most of the way out. Not out of bitterness, not out of remorse. She knew that we had to go do what we had to do. But sadness. Because we had established a home there. And we loved it there. I've lived in all, every western state other than Washington. I spent some time there. And Alaska I loved above all. It's my heart's desire. God let me stay there for about 12 years. I wasn't in the ministry at that time for good reason. And I never wanted to ever go back to the ministry. Didn't want ever to do that again. I had had enough, 17 years of it. And once I was free of it, I never wanted to go back. Even though Herbert Armstrong had told me, I want you back at some point. Once I was out of it, I didn't want to go there anymore. But God stuck my nose back in it. That's another story. I tell my own story a little bit. But you have your own, don't you? You had a place you liked. You had a place you loved. Georgia, Texas, Tennessee, God forbid, a lot of places we were. I'm needling a couple people. But no, you loved where you were. You liked what you were doing, probably, to one degree or another. But it says here, there is no man that has left house, or brethren, be it physical brothers and sisters, or church, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions. doesn't mention 
wives or husbands here. It does in the account in Matthew, parallel sister account. Some of you have left mates. There's one woman here who gave up her mate to move here. Hard to do. Hard to do. He comes and visits here once in a while with her. But God mentions that here. It wasn't easy. Brethren and sisters and mothers and children. Some of us may be required to give up our children. That might be harder for some of us than giving up a house or land or brothers or sisters or even a mate. What if you had to give up your children to obey God? That would be a toughie, wouldn't it? He says that may be what we're called on to do. Leave our children. Because we are the children of God. And we have a job to do. He never said it would be easy. Give up any of these things for my sake and the gospel's. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. Many that are first shall be last and the last first. The homes, the children, of the people of this land are in the process of being taken away from them. First the homes and lands, and then through persecution, famine, disease, pestilence, and death, the people of this land will be required to give up their mates and their children to death. At least 90% will die. Now, God has asked us to do whatever is necessary to come out of this world before this crash comes. When is it coming? Some say this summer. Some say this fall. It might hang together for another year. I don't know. But it's imminent. We see the wall leaning outward, as Isaiah, I think, 29 says, and then it will fall. It's leaning out there pretty good. How long will it take? None of us know. God does. But we have a period of time here, I don't know how short it is now, to respond to what God has to say. I hope we don't get caught in the sins and the plagues of the culture and the society around us. We read last night that we are not of this world. The Bible makes it clear we are not to be the friends of this world. That if we obey Him, they won't want to be friends with us. They will hate us because they see a difference between us and them. We are not of the world. We are of God. He says if they hated Him, they would hate us. And they hated Him. If the world loves you, the people in this world love you, you are on the wrong track. Hear that? 
If they think highly of you, if they love you, you are turning from God Himself. Because that makes you part of this world. It's a scary place to be in. Why do they hate you? Because you don't go to the same excess of riot they do. They want a party. They want to sin. They want to break God's laws. And when we go there, if we're like them, they like us. But if we pull back and don't do the things they do, they don't like us. Because they feel uncomfortable. Because we won't be like they are. So it's incompatible. You go the way of the world or you go the way of God. There's no sitting on the fence. No man can serve two masters. It's impossible to do. But some of us try to straddle the fence and be friends of God and friends of the world both. And God very clearly shows in many scriptures you simply cannot do that. And he forbids us to do that. He says we will not enter the kingdom of God if we do that. In so many words. So he's telling us that if we're willing to give up the things that are nearest and dearest to us and come and follow him, that there will be a great reward. What did he tell the disciples when he called them? Come, follow me. What did Elisha do when it was time to follow Elijah? He killed his oxen, his way of making a living through farming. Killed them, made a sacrifice of them. He burned his bridges behind him, in other words, and said, I am going to go and follow Elijah and be his student. He'll be my mentor. He'll teach me what I need to know. He burned his bridges. And God used him in a great way later on. But he had to learn what he needed to learn first. So God has called upon us to do the same thing. And his whole remnant, 10% of his church, are going to do that. Now, whether they're going to come before or after the crash remains to be seen. Now, all we can consider then here today is us. And what we are to do. The who, what, why, where, when, and how of us. Because we're the only ones we can deal with. The rest have to deal for themselves. We have to deal with us. I'm just getting into this and just starting to get where I want to go with this background. So we'll stop right there before we get into this other section that I was headed for. And it'll be good to take that up then tomorrow night.